0: Welcome to Introducing Me. I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people and lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I'll give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interests, or whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own worldviews. Today, I would like to introduce you to Carrie Goppel She was born with cystic fibrosis and received a life-saving bilateral lung transplant at the age of 27. Along with other health conditions, she mentors others with similar stories and backgrounds. So I'm grateful to have Carrie here today and share a little bit more about her life and everything she's got going on. So thank you so much, Carrie. Why don't you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself?
1: Thank you, Sarah. Um, I'm excited to be here to share my story. Uh, as you mentioned, I have cystic fibrosis. It is a genetic, disease, so you're born with it. It uh, impacts pretty much every system in the body, but it most significantly impacts the lungs and the um, GI system. So some patients are affected by having diabetes, some have liver issues, but pretty much all of them will have lung issues and um, because of the lung issues, I had frequent recurring infections and was told that I would need a lung transplant when I was, I want to say, 25 years old. So it was an extremely frightening time in my life. I mean, I was 25. I was just getting started in my profession. I was an auditor albeit not exciting, but (laughs) I was, you know, I'd worked hard to get there. So it was um, pretty sad to be on the downward spiral of cystic fibrosis at that age. I will say 25 was the average life expectancy when I was 25. So I thought I was really making it, but, um, um, I was at 26, I was assigned a mentor who is, now my husband to help walk with me through what it's like to wait for and hope for a transplant and what life would like would look like after that transplant and since then because it meant so much to me mentoring's really become a passion for me in my life
0: so what was those you know few years like at 25 kind of getting that diagnosis and even kind of going into 25 saying this is my life expectancy to then being able to get a transplant.
1: Uh, so it actually really kind of started before that uh, as far as um, I was like losing control of my life. You know, I, I worked really hard to get through school. I did have to do IV antibiotics uh, to graduate from college. So managing that was different and difficult for me because it was new. I'm one of the very, I'm very grateful for it, but you know, one of the ones that was able to go to college and make it and graduate. Um, nowadays it's probably more prevalent that back in my time before, you know, the advancement of more medications for people with cystic fibrosis, I will call them CFers. If you hear me them that, that's who I'm talking about. Um, because of the advancements of uh, gene modifier type drugs, especially recently Trikafta, patients are now able to do things like go to college and um, have lung function and, and the life expectancy i I think it's now um, in the in the forties or fifties because of Trikafta. so it's it might even be higher than that. I knew. Before I'm sorry, I forgot the what the letter said. I just got a letter, and I was so excited to see it, and I shared it on Facebook. But I forget what the age was. But it's way more than what we were told. So I remember being sick. Uh, I was living with an aunt in her basement, and I had just read Andy Lippman, another CFR's book called um, like "Alive at 25" or something along those lines. I'm probably butchering his poor title of his book, but. I was like, oh my gosh, I made it too. You know, I was just like so excited. But at the same time, new things were, I was really struggling. I was on oxygen um, at least at night, if not with activity. So that had kind of started and I was struggling to get um, my, the doctor that I was with initially to get her to really treat me. Right. I was in and out of the hospital so much and things just weren't happening that that's when I really became an advocate for myself and finally like took charge and said, you know what, I'm going to find a doctor that knows what they're doing and get another opinion and see what's going on. And I found out that um, the antibiotics that my previous doctor was using to treat me weren't treating the infection I had. And so he put me on different medications. He even, um, when I got a different type of infection, sent the cultures off to New York somewhere to get them, to get synergy testing done on them, which is where they try several different combinations of antibiotics to see if that will help. They found something. They were able to treat me for, to help me make it to 27 to get that transplant. So it was like just... Losing control of your life in one aspect and like the social, family, job aspect. And yet, also, I had to take control in a different way as far as what my healthcare looked like and what doctors I was seeing and what they were saying and how they were treating me, things like that.
0: Yeah. So it sounds like you made that right choice and switching doctors and becoming that advocate for yourself. So then, what was the lung transplant? process like?
1: It was uh, a bit daunting (laughs) for lung transplants, at least at the lung lung transplant center where I uh, got my transplant and was evaluated. They're very strict about medications you might be on prior to. So some CFers use pain medication because towards end of life, it's painful to breathe. The little muscles in in between your ribs, bones really start to hurt. And so some patients, you know, choose to try and relieve the pain and their doctors allow that. But for transplant, transplant says, no, you can't be on any kind of pain medication. That's, you know, like opiate based, you can do Tylenol, you can do ibuprofen. I was actually put on, um, some like arthritis type back pain medicine to keep me off of, opiate-based type type stuff. Uh, Patients can't use medical marijuana and um, like weight restrictions, um, time restrictions. It was very intense. It was from like 6 a.m. every morning until mid-afternoon, so it was extremely exhausting. And then you're sitting on pins and needles waiting to hear if the doctors say if you're a candidate or not. So it's a Monday to a Thursday in one week. Thankfully, I live in the area of my transplant center. So it was just a drive down to the hospital and back every day. But for some patients, they have to, you know, they're coming from different states and they have to stay here for a week. And so they have to haul all of their treatment with them, whatever that looks like. If it's IV antibiotics, if it's oxygen concentrators, if it's, you know, whatever it is, they have to bring all that with them. So thankfully I just had to Go, you know, thirty minutes from my parents' house, which is where whom I was living with when I, at that point in my life, um, down to the transplant center. So, but it was it was very nail biting (laughs) experience. And at the time, I did not have a mentor. I had not met my husband, and so I had no idea what to expect other than what um, the coordinators for they have pre-transplant coordinators and post-transplant coordinators with this lung transplant center other than the letter they'd sent me telling me this is your schedule and this is where to be it was like anybody's game who knew what to expect (laughs) so
0: then what was it like when you met your husband and really their first got the chance to have a mentor
1: it was. It provided me so much hope. Um, we talked on the phone initially, and it was just crazy to be able to relate to somebody in so many ways. I, I had never had that before. With the cystic fibrosis community, we're not allowed to see each other. Like um, we have to. Mean I don't know if you've seen the movie Five Feet Apart. It's like it became a major motion picture, and it was about two people with CF. Well, at at the time of my transplant, it was six feet apart, which the movie kind of mentions, but so you weren't in contact or face-to-face communication with other CFers. You you just didn't have that opportunity. And with my age group and my husband's age group growing up, we didn't have social media to be able to even connect on a social level like that. So it was ex- I mean, and at the time, I mean, I got my transplant in 2004. That didn't really exist then either. So when he first called and, you know, said who he was and kind of explained what he had been through, what it was like for him. And we talked, we were, we realized, you know, we both had to do IVs in college and what the struggle was with that, the struggle with our weight and being smaller. Um, the doctors we saw were actually the same doctors, just passing each, you know, we were both just passing each other through life, I guess, just seven years apart. (laughs) So it was really, it was really um, a a moment of connecting with someone and relating with someone, which was super healing and provided hope. When he, he had a mentor and the person that mentored him saw the importance of my husband, his name is Gary, of Gary meeting His mentor in person. The significance of that, Gary took with him, and Gary said, "You know what? I think it's really important that we meet, so you can see what I look like. You have no idea. I can tell you that I'm healthy and I'm fine, but you don't have an idea what that is." So, um, we actually met like a month or two after initially meeting over the phone, and I remember watching him get out of his car because I happened to be sitting in my parents' office that has a window that looks out to the street. So I saw him get out of his car and I remember being like, oh, he's cute. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I'm okay with this, (laughs) if this is what, you know. So it was, we have taken the importance and significance of seeing somebody that has had a transplant and changed the way we mentor patients to be that now when people come to get their evaluations at the lung transplant center, they actually meet two patients that have had received lung transplants and they get to like meet them in a room, a big conference room. So everybody can have their own, you know, space, not spread, you know, diseases or whatever, but six feet apart, COVID protocols, but all of the patients still get to see us in person. And that, I think that really, it's really meant a lot to them.
0: Definitely. It, it truly sounds like that, is so important with the, you know, restrictions that you had. And, you know, I'm guessing that, you know, the pandemic and a lot of things moving online and even just like video conferencing, like blowing up and social media existing in general has also changed some of that community within the CFRs.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I've met several people through Facebook that have become good friends because I saw that they were on transplant community uh, or what would you call them? Groups. I guess they're called Facebook groups. (laughs) Um, I would see them and see them posting, you know, and I would look and try to post helpful information as well, or give advice in a, in a sense of like, this is what I experienced. So you might look out for that. And uh, I would say two or three patients that I sort of, it all started on social media in one way or another. I've become friends with because of that. And I think it's, it's been great for even new parents that, whose kids are diagnosed with cystic fibrosis. They have communities to turn to, large communities with vast backgrounds. I mean, even between my husband and myself, both having the same genetic mutation with cystic fibrosis, we present very differently like for his transplant his lungs dried out he was on oxygen for two years pretty stable not hospitalized much i looked very different i was in and out of the hospital all the time with infections my um, oxygen requirements would go up and down dependent on how severe the infection had gotten and it was I mean, even that part was hard with him being my mentor. I was just like, how come you didn't experience this? How come you were able to walk faster on the treadmill than me? How come, you know, I took all these questions to the doctor and it's frustrating to hear the the answer, everyone is different. But at the same time, you know, like with a larger community on these social media platforms, you'll find that someone different that you can relate to more, you know, more so than you would in person.
0: So then, since getting the lung transplant, what has kind of like the road to recovery, and what is now like the day to day with having cystic fibrosis?
1: With having cystic fibrosis, for me, the I still have sinus infections, recurring sinus infections, and the necessity to treat that is pretty high because we don't want the infection getting my lungs. So even though my lungs are healthy, they they are not cystic fibrosis lungs. The I still like the main part that CF still impacts as far as transplant is concerned is my sinuses. Everything else is kind of the same um, for people with CF, they still have to take enzymes, um, which is to help them digest their food. It, they still have to take insulin if they're diabetic, they still have to watch their livers if they have liver issues. So, Because, you know, because CF is a systemic, I guess you would say, um, disease, it affects everything all the way down to a cellular level. Uh, There is still going to be the management of that. Uh, The good thing is, is that you have healthy lungs now, problem being you're immunosuppressed. (laughs) So you're susceptible to catching viruses and things like that. But that's more of a transplant problem than a CF problem. As far as transplant is concerned, I've I've pretty much been through all of the bumps in the road, as they call them, that I think are possible. I started to wonder if I was on a gravel road based on what I was experiencing, because it was like really one thing after another. It seems like, and again, like as a point of how different everyone is, my husband has not like he has not have the had the issues that I have. He doesn't have the. Um, constant doctor appointments and procedures and infusions and things like that. Like I do, he has become diabetic and that has been kind of the extent of his complications after transplant. For me, my complications involved acute rejection, uh, five times actually, which it's not common for that to happen. Uh, I was catching a bunch of infections and like um viruses and things that were making me sick right off the bat. And when you have a transplant and you get sick, you kind of get stuck in this cycle of, well, we have to treat the illness, whatever it is, the virus it or infection. But in order to when we do that, it sort of boosts your immune system in a way with these antibiotics and they kind of lay off the immunosuppression medication so that your body can recover. Well, when they do that, your lung, you know, your lungs are then can start to reject your body can start to reject your lungs because you've decreased the immunosuppression in order to recover from this sickness. And now your lungs are like, Oh wait, Hey, I don't belong here. So they start fighting and now you're in a rejection and it's like this sort of cycle in Catch-22 that I was stuck in for six or seven months. Um, it took them about a year to figure out that I have something else complicating things, which is called hypogamma It's a big mouthful to say that my body just doesn't produce the, the antigens to help my immune system the way that it should. So since it's a pretty easy fix with just an infusion, me being on the infusions has helped a lot. However, those infusions, which are called IVIG, um, I had bad reactions to. And so it was like off and on. I was on them and then off them because I would have such bad reactions. We had to stop. I would get sick. They'd find another way around. They'd put me back on, go off. So it's... Thankfully, they have found a formulation that works for me and pre-medication, you know, medications that I take to help counter those um, bad uh, reactions. So I've been successfully on, knock on wood, this form of IVIG since 2018 without complications. So that part is sort of just maintenance once a year or once a year, once a month. I go in for that. Um, In 2012, I had, I started down the road of chronic rejection. So, the other thing I'm kind of passionate about is I would love for us to find better ways to treat chronic rejection than what's currently available. Thankfully, there's more available now than there was when I first had chronic rejection, but, um, and, Also, thankfully, the treatment I'm getting is working. I've stabilized and actually regained lung function back from when I experienced a pretty drastic decrease in my lung function due to chronic rejection in 2018. It's called photophoresis is what I do, but Um, only certain insurance covers it. You have to go down to a transplant center to get it done. And you sit next to this, you're tied to this machine for several hours while it does what it does to help you. So there's a lot of limiting life limiting factors involved in that. So not everybody can receive the treatment. Um, and that's aside from additional antibiotics or like, prednisone there's not a whole lot of other treatments for chronic rejection so that's that's kind of sad and why I participated in the lung transplant foundations like uh, request to the FDA to really focus more time and money and energy into researching other forms of treatment for chronic rejection but um, I could go on for hours (laughs) with all of this stuff that I've kind of experienced, unfortunately, in between um, having my transplant and now, including heart attacks and congestive heart failure due to a medication that I was given. So um, it's been a lot. I'm honestly just super grateful to still be here and have the quality of life and the ability to travel and um, do the things that I love still. But You know, like when a patient experiences what I've experienced, I can I can speak to that. But to list it all would would unfortunately take up your whole podcast. So I'm going to spare you the details of that. That's that's a lot of what I shared.
0: Yeah, it sounds like you've definitely had a lot handed to you. So is the chronic rejection basically like your body saying like these lungs aren't supposed to be here? But at the same time, like you had I'm guessing there was some sort of like match process when you got the donation. Is that correct?
1: Correct. Yes. The matching process, I think, is even more involved now than it was when I got my transplant just because they've learned how helpful it is to match more and more of the antibodies that each person has as much as they can with a donor um, my chronic rejection, I don't think is antibody related. It's strictly my body saying, um, I I recognize that this isn't right. So I, I actually don't know as many specifics as I wish I did because each there's several different types of chronic rejection. I believe one of them being like, Hey, your donor antibodies aren't, um, they're building up against you against the lungs. And I don't think that that's, what's happening for me. It's a different kind. Um, But when I was matched and I don't know exactly what all the specifics they matched aside from uh, blood type, there, there are certain um, like bigger, they call them HLA antibodies that they did try to match. Um, If you've had, and it's changed now. It used to be like if you had had particular viruses that your body builds up antibodies for, um, that they wanted to try and match you with the donor that had had that illness as well. Uh, for example, something like hepatitis. I forget which one I want to say C. Now, because there's so many treatments for hepatitis that they don't, that's not something that you have to try and match so much anymore. They can just, if you develop hepatitis from your donor, they can treat you. You'll become hep C positive, but they can treat you and that's not a limiting factor to um, available organs. So they've found better ways to open up the donor field but also better ways to match you to your donors um, and specific to things like that. But for me, when I went through, it was sort of like, we'll see if we can get the best we can. And like, you can sign to say I'll take less. Like if I can't match on this level, I'll take the next level down. And I was actually approached and told you need to accept what you can and we'll treat whatever happens, like the consequences. So my donor had a particular virus um, that you build antibodies to. It's called cytomegalovirus or CMV for short. And like 85% of the population's had it. It's like a flu type virus, but for whatever reason, your body builds antibodies to it. And I said, yes, I want to wait for a, a donor that's negative like myself, but I was so sick and I was in, um, I was in pulmonary failure that they said, you got to take what you can get. So we'll just treat if you end up getting this virus, if it's reactivated because you're immunosuppressed, um, we'll treat it. And that's actually why treating my donor's virus is what ended up causing me to have the heart attacks and go into congestive heart failure. So it wasn't as easy as they told me it would be. However, I am still alive today to speak to it. Um, But blood type and size are other obviously big factors. My donor was tall. My donor's name is Andrew. Um, I have been fortunate enough to meet the family and I see them at least once a year. Uh, But he was very tall. He was like six foot two or three. And um, being a taller female worked in my favor because the smaller you are, the smaller your donor has to be. And most people are sort of, I guess, between five, six and six, two in this country. And the fact that I'm five, nine weighed in my favor in this particular instance, <laughs> I think they still had to like trim the the lungs down a little bit because they wouldn't, I don't think they could completely fit in my chest cavity. They can do that if somebody's just a little bit bigger they can trim like the base of the lungs down um which is a newer procedure that I didn't even know about but I'm pretty sure they had to do it to me because I don't know how a six foot two male could fit into a five foot nine female but it worked out so
0: right now, is it commonplace for people to know who their donors are and meet the family? Or is that something that you kind of like were able to choose to do?
1: Um, It's not commonplace. I would say it's getting a little more common just due to people um, being a little more open to organ donation in general. It's not so taboo. People aren't as, um, you know... I don't know what the word would be, but like they're just not as afraid to know and to share. And the donor families aren't as af- as afraid to share. So it is still a process where both the donor family and the recipient have to say that, yes, I would like to um, t- communicate with the family. The communication starts through a mediary. So for us locally, it's um, Mid-America Transplant Services is our organ procurement um, center. They receive any any mail that you write or the donor family writes and is like a interceptor for it. And they will literally black out anything that They will redact information that you shouldn't be sharing. So last names, addresses, phone numbers, email addresses, they don't want any of that shared until there's been communication between the families for a relatively decent amount of time, say three to five months, pretty regularly. And then there's forms that both sides sign saying, yes, I agree to open communication that Mid-America Transplant Services doesn't have to be the intermediary anymore. And for the patients, there's actually, the doctor actually has to sign off saying like, yeah, I think this patient is in good health. They don't have any bad intentions towards this family. And at that point, you can share, like, if you just want it to be a phone number, because you just want to open up communication by telephone, or you can share everything. And my family and I both chose to share everything. But we started with just emails. um, And I I think it's been 10 years now that we've had open communication and that I've been visiting them. But initially it took seven years um, to actually really get that back and forth going. And we did it by email for a while to get to know each other a little better. And then one day, some friends of mine at church said that they were driving through, you know, where my don- I knew my donor family lived. So I was like, um, could I tag along and like maybe meet my donor family? Like it was just sort of a spur of the moment thing. And I called up the mom and said, I know this might be weird, but you said I could come anytime and I've got this opportunity to kind of ride along with some friends. Would that be all right? And she said, Absolutely, you're welcome here. So, the very first time I met my donor's mom was in the dark of night because we got there, you know, like nine o'clock at night on a Friday night. And she, I stayed in their home, in their guest room. She like took me in, and they've just, that's the kind of family they are. They're very loving and accepting and gracious. So, I'm very blessed to be a part of their family and considered a part of their family.
0: Yes, it sounds like it It worked out for both parties and wasn't like it wasn't an immediate thing. It's like realistically, no. that would be probably difficult.
1: Yeah, I do think, you know, every person grieves in their own time. And, you know, from a recipient standpoint, I was afraid to reach out because I didn't want to remind them of their loss. Like, here I am living the the best life because their son gave it to me. Do I want to be like a constant reminder of that to them? You know, I was afraid of the worst. And for them, they're like, no, you're like a reminder of how of the blessing he was and that he continues to be through you and all of the other people that his organs saved. So it's a different perspective for sure.
0: Definitely. Now, you mentioned how your husband was originally your mentor. So how did kind of your relationship blossom with him? And knowing that while you have these similar stories, it also sounds like things have been very different for both of you on your health journeys.
1: Yeah, I would say, like, sometimes I say, you don't know what you signed up for, do you? Like, you had no idea what you're getting into, but on a different... In a different level, yeah, he kind of did because he saw me, you know, getting sick and needing the transplant. And so I met him in um, April or our first conversation was in April of 2004, which is the year I got my transplant. It started with phone calls. He would kind of check in every once in a while with email, knowing that phone calls were a little more difficult because of oxygen and breathing. He He said he could barely hear me because I wasn't. Rejecting my voice because I was conserving my oxygen. Um, So we would email and he would check in. We saw each other a few times over that summer. And then in the fall, uh, I invited him to go with me to our St. Louis area. They have in Forest Park what they call the Great Balloon Race. And I was in a time in my life where I was wanting to do the things that I loved to do because it might be the last time. I wasn't sure how much time I had left. And so I was like, I used I love going to this. I used to go as much as I could almost every year. So like would you like to join my parents and me and go to one of these? Um so he went with me and we had a good day and then when I got you know, we got back to my house, he came back with us, even though I think he met us down at the park. Um he followed back to my parents' house. And my brother said, Hey, we're having a barbecue. Do you want to come hang out and have barbecue? And I was having a good day. So I was like, yeah, absolutely. Like any, again, any time I get to spend with family and do stuff. And since Gary was there with me, I was like, do you want to go with? He's like, sure. I'll go with, I'll drive to help you conserve energy. And I was like, really? That means you got to go there. Stay with me. <laughs> we're we'll back. He signed up for it. So it was kind of at in that fall, September, October period where we started communicating on a more daily basis, Um, mostly through emails. Just he had a a calendar, like a daily calendar where you rip off each day as it goes by. And it was the would you rather, I think, game where it's goofy scenarios and you have to pick which one you would want out of the two. But he would, he started posing those would you rather questions to me in the emails and then answering. So I got, you know, a little more insight into who he is, his sense of humor. I would respond as well. He would get similar insight into me and my humor. He said one of the things that he liked about me was that if he would tease me, I would tease him right back. I wouldn't just like get defensive or not say anything, I would just kind of dish it back to him. And I don't know that he was used to that from many people. So um, it kind of, it, it started going more daily in October. I, uh, he sat down with me sometime in, I think, October uh, and said, I have to, I have to confess that I can't be your mentor anymore. And I was like, I was really upset because I was kind of like, why, what's going on? What, what did, you know, what was said or what did I do? (laughs) And, uh, he's like, now I'm your friend, like I'm your friend more than your mentor. So I just was like all hyped up and I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you did that. I was like, you, oh, I called him a dork in the last podcast. He didn't really appreciate that, but that's kind of how I felt when, uh, when he did that to me, it was like a total trick, but, Uh, He was actually with me the night that I got my call for my transplant and went down with me and stayed until he knew I was, like, doing well in surgery, and um, we started dating about not quite two weeks after my transplant, so I tease him that he waited to to date me to see if I would survive. (laughs) He didn't ask me out beforehand because he didn't want to date a dead girl walking, so... He's like, stop it. You had enough going on. I didn't want to like burden you with a relationship too. So, but yeah, that's sort of how things developed.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, um, I, I do think it's funny how he posed that I can't be your mentor anymore. Um, (laughs) right. (laughs) And so then of course you started mentoring, um, you know, kind of having realizing what initially like a good mentor meant and kind of the meeting up with somebody. So what has mentoring other people been like?
1: It's been extremely rewarding. Um, and you know, like training new people to be mentors is like, it's just like an expansion on the rewards because, you know, we're impacting people's lives. We're making a difference. Um, the fact that we like, I've been a part of making you know, the seeing people in person as part of the evaluation process with the social workers in the transplant center. Um, That's been just huge to be a part of that. And even social workers from other transplant centers reached out when they heard what we were doing and would ask questions on how did you develop this? And why did you, you know, what made you come up with this? What made you think of this? And it was all because of just how impactful it was to see Someone that had had the transplant, you can talk all day long about it, but you know you don't know. Are they still on oxygen? Do they have? Um, and we take all types. You know, we have a mentor right now who has a permanent trach. That's you know, like our social worker has always said: be completely honest with everything that's happened. Lung transplant is not a beauty pageant, and it's not a cakewalk. Like it's real. Um, the survival statistics aren't great. I mean, they're the lowest of the solid organ transplants, and that's just because your lungs are constantly exposed to the external environment. So you're not only fighting your own body to keep the lungs, you know, from being rejected, you're fighting pollution and smog and viruses and infections and things like that. So the fact that the survival rate's gone up just barely since I had my transplant is like, yeah, that kind of makes sense. I mean, I would hope it would be more, but, um, and different transplant centers have different survival rates, but it's just been so, so rewarding. And it's like, what brings me joy? So during COVID when we stopped meeting with patients and like mentoring in general sort of stopped because we didn't know how to move forward with helping patients that were coming in for evaluations Since most of it was being done via um, Zoom, you know, like even the social workers, dietitians, things like that, weren't seeing the patients in person. They're all doing it via Zoom. We were like, well, and then there's all these privacy and HIPAA and like legalities that you have to look out for when you're discussing things with a patient over Zoom because Zoom has certain limitations, I guess, for their own legal reasons. So it was a huge adjustment. And I kind of, I mean, I felt like I lost my identity. I, I feel like there's purpose behind all of the things I've gone through when I can help someone else that's going through it as well. When there's not, it just feels like a struggle for no reason. And so I was kind of stuck in a slump during COVID. But man, I was one of the first mentors out of the gate once they said we could meet back in person again. I was like, I'm done. I signed up. I got all my volunteering stuff done with the hospital. It's all caught up. I'm ready. Let's go.
0: (laughs) And so what was COVID like aside from, you know, the change in mentoring for you as someone who's immunocompromised?
1: Uh, I mean, it was scary at first, for sure. But... um, My husband and I both kind of just approached it as, as any other virus with, as some, as people with transplants, we have to be concerned about what's out there whenever, not just any particular virus. And so as immunosuppressed patients, we are taught hand washing is super important. Hand sanitizer is always on us. Uh, we used to always carry a mask with us anyway in the event that we got stuck in a position where we couldn't get away from somebody that sounded sick. Um, but we we just kind of kept following those protocols. And uh, thankfully, neither of us got sick like during the first awful round of um, COVID, we got, I guess, Omicron or something, which it was less severe, but still. Um, our doctors were very adamant about keeping us safe. We didn't go into the hospital unless, like, for, and by hospital, I mean doctor's appointments. Uh, we didn't go in unless we absolutely needed to be seen by the doctors. They just kind of said, Are you doing okay? Yep. Then let's postpone your visit because there's no need for you to be here around sick people. Um, as far as like mentoring patients that we do one-on-one like my husband did with me, uh, we weren't allowed to see him in the hospital, which we do on a regular basis outside of COVID. So that was different to not be able to, you know, go in and be present for patients that are stuck in the hospital for, you know, months or you know whatever the situation might be. Um, but yeah, we kind of, we didn't, we didn't do the, we weren't overboard, but we weren't ridiculous. Like we, we were still smart and intentional, but if we took a walk outside, we weren't wearing masks or, you know, once everything kind of cleared up and they, the mask mandate was lifted, we didn't wear masks. And I do know that there are still people that choose to do that. Even non-transplant patients, you know, you see people still wearing masks, um, That's not something that we did. So it's everybody's kind of personal um, comfort level when it comes to that.
0: Definitely. And to hear kind of like what protocols you had to follow and just kind of make sure you were being safe pre-COVID and then kind of this is what the doctors are saying, you know, we can do this instead of that. So I think it's, it's, you know, not necessarily something that maybe a lot of people have heard about. Now, very early on, you did mention that you went to school, you, you know, you got through college and you were starting life as an auditor. Are you still doing anything in that field?
1: Not in auditing specifically. Um, I did not get my CPA certification. So I was able to graduate with an accounting degree and I have sat for my CPA exam, uh, once. Signed up for it twice, but the second time I used the time off from work to relocate from where I was attending school in Springfield, Missouri to where my job was in St. Louis, Missouri. They still expected me to sit for the CPA exam. And I was like, I don't even live here yet. And I got to go to Springfield and sit for this exam for two and three days. And then you want me back up here working the following day? I was like, no, I'm moving the rest of my stuff. I'm not, I didn't sit for the exam. And Then I was just, I mean, I was only in the field for two and a half years before needing to quit and take care of myself. So after transplant, getting my CPA certification was kind of like, I don't really want to spend my time and energy doing that. Besides, I married a CPA. (laughs) and My husband's a CPA. So I have a CPA certificate (laughs) in my house. It's just not mine. But I still do... um, The part that I loved about auditing was like the being nosy and the digging in. I'm I'm very much looking at the trees versus the forest sort of person, and that's what auditing essentially is. And uh I did go back to work sort of part-time with helping small business owners, and I saw where there was a big gap where small business owners don't know like regulations that they might need to follow in order to get a business started, when an employee starts, um, getting licenses and things like that. So, um, I, in, after the person I was working for at the time, like her business got so big and I was part-time, I'm like, I can't help you anymore. You need to find somebody that can do this more like on a full-time basis. And, I went back out looking into the job field and it was ridiculous. The job field had tanked because it was like 2010, whenever the, you know, job slumps happened back then. And people are wanting to pay $10 an hour for a highly educated, experienced accountant. And I was just like, well, that's not worth my time and energy either. So seeing the lack of you know, understanding of the accounting side of things from a small business owner, especially the more creative types that you know they go into business to do what they love. Um, I was like, you know what, I'm going to start my own business and I'm going to help people keep their books and stay compliant and get their you know certifications and licenses and registered and keep them copacetic with the <laughs> with the legal require you know IRS requirements and stuff. So. Um, I started that in officially like with a business name and everything, I think in 2010, 2011, and I'm able to adjust as my health kind of ebbs and flows. Like I might have to let some clients go In 2018, I was so sick and we didn't know if I was going to recover. I pretty much resigned from everyone except for one client. And since then, like they've kind of trickled back. So I I have about 10 clients right now that I manage, kind of keep their books, help them file different like sales tax returns or payroll returns and things like that. So super boring stuff, but um, it keeps me, my feet firmly planted on the ground and gives me something to do besides just go to doctor's appointments and take care of myself. (laughs) So.
0: Yeah, you need you need that something else. And, you know, you were so proud to get the college degree that I think it's great that you, you know, been able to kind of change it into what works best for your your health, your life and what you want to enjoy.
1: Yeah, and it's been fun, you know, helping different people get their businesses started and see just where they go, where they take it.
0: Yes. Now, before I start to wrap things up, is there anything else you would like to share with the listeners today?
1: Um, I think I just, you know, being so grateful for the gift of life that I have received from my donor, Andrew, I would just be remiss if I didn't mention organ donation and how important it is for people to be or- organ donors. Um I can provide, I think maybe after the show, I can provide a link for you that maybe you can include that is a national registry. Uh, I do think like you have to look within your specific state if you want to sign up to be an organ donor. Each state has their own registry as well. So that's more state dependent, but um, it's, I mean, it's saving lives and there's a lot of sort of misinformation understanding that goes with organ donation. You know, people thinking, well, if I get in a serious accident and they see on my license that I'm an organ donor, it means they're not going to try and save my life. Like it's actually the opposite. They're going to try to save your life as best they can because they need healthy organs if you don't make it. So in the event you don't make it that you they've done the best that they can and your organs have stayed alive and healthy that you can become an organ donor. Whereas if they don't try to save you, those organs may not be viable anyway. So it's sort of a, I I get why people have that misunderstanding, but it's definitely not true. And then, you know, like just ask questions. There's on the national website, I believe there's lots of uh, a list of like frequently asked questions and it's just, I think super helpful for people that have, uh, either don't know much about organ donation or have reservations about being, um, organ donors. It's, it's a great resource for them to maybe help make that decision.
0: Hey, I'll be sure to leave that link. And, you know, as your Testament today, it, it saved your life. Um, and you've, been able to do lots of great things, um, since not knowing if you'd even live past 25.
1: Yeah. I mean, and it saved my husband and I mean, I've, I see it, I see organ donation changing lives almost daily and it's amazing and, but it wouldn't be possible if people didn't sign up. So we're super grateful. And, um, even, even my, my donor's family is super grateful. Like they, They are um, Christians and, like, really believe that God just had a plan. And while they didn't maybe understand it, they, they see fruit from what their son's, you know, gift. I mean, he's, I feel like his heart, his liver, his kidneys, his lungs, like, they all went to save people. So he saved multiple lives.
0: Yes, and it's wonderful, you know, as you shared earlier, how you've been able to continue to connect with them. I will definitely make sure to include that. um, So if anyone wants to sign up, check it into more information, they are always welcome to do that. At the end of all my episodes, I do ask my guests a random question. So my question for you is, how do you like to decorate your home?
1: Wow, I like that question. I love to decorate my home. <laughs> it drives my husband crazy because I keep sort of changing it. Um, it My home is be starting to become like a pottery barn catalog. <laughs> if you know pottery barn style, that's pretty much how I decorate my home. But um, each room is a little different with the same sort of underlying vibe. Uh, we have a, I guess, modern modern farmhouse look to everything for the most part but i just i love each room being a little different and a, like a little special in a, in some little way so like for example our guest bath the tile in the floor is like a fun black and gray um i even believe that the tile style was called like picasso or 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 Monet or something you know like an evening in Paris I mean it was some beautiful artistic name and it's I every time somebody goes in they're like wow great tile <laughs> so like one little piece hopefully sticks out in each room but um comfortable but beautiful is what I try to go for I mean I'm home most of the time I mean I work from home my business is based from my home And, um, with the limitations that I do have with my health, like I I don't go, I don't go far from home. So I make it as comfortable as possible for me (laughs) and hopefully my guests.
0: All right, that brings this episode to a close. As I mentioned, I will be leaving a link for the National Donor Registry that Carrie mentioned. So if you'd like to go check that out and look at those FAQs, feel free to do that. I will also be leaving Andy Lipman's website in the description. So Carrie mentioned one of his books, Alive at 25. He's got some other great things out there as well. Some other things he's published if you'd like to check him out. And of course, also the movie that she recommended, Five Feet Apart, will also be in the description. And if you'd like to connect with Carrie on Instagram or Facebook, her links for that will be there as well. If you'd like to connect with the podcast on social media, our website is in the description. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn, so feel free to go follow those pages. And if you would like to be a guest on the show, my email is in the description. That is always the best way to reach out to me. And if you'd be interested in supporting the podcast monetarily, there is a link to do that as well. So thank you so much, Carrie, for spending time with me today and to my listeners for taking the time out of your day to hear a new story. Until next time,
1: bye. Thanks, Sarah. It's been such a pleasure.